You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hello, it's Ed. Hey, it's Grace. Hi, it's Shannon. Hey, it's Katie. And hey, it's Melissa. Today, we are going to be discussing the still unsolved disappearance of Joanne Williams. Our case today takes place in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is about two and a half hours north of Philadelphia. Scranton is the sixth largest city in Pennsylvania and is known as the Electric City. It was given that nickname because in 1886, the United States' first successful streetcars, powered only by electricity, began operating in Scranton. And of course, I can't mention Scranton without mentioning the hit NBC show, The Office, which took my Can favorite. I just say before we move on that yes. this, I'm loving these town, the town flavor we're adding to these cases. The town facts. It's awesome. Yes. Can I, can I share my experience with Scranton? Because it is kind of on that, like, I was, when I didn't live in Pennsylvania, I came up here for a wedding and I was like, we're going to be near Scranton. We have to go. And I wanted to go to the bar from the office, yes. which is, it's actually in a bowling alley. It's not like, like a bar. Um, and I'm sitting there at the bar having a drink. And on the news, there's a thing that there's um serial killer on the loose armed and they had to lock everything down. So I was like locked in a bowling alley for five oh hours. Oh my God. In wow. That's your Scranton experience. Huh? Well, that's and the that's vacation to was remember. Was it the Scranton Strangler? Like they mentioned <laughs> like the Scranton on the show? The Strangler. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. What an experience. <laughs> yeah. It was really, it was really something. Um, that's probably a shame. Won't go Scranton's back. a great place. <laughs> Well, that is where our case <laughs> takes place in Scranton. So um, our story though today is about Joanne Williams. Joanne was born on November 29th, 1956 to parents William and Christine Williams. She was their only child. Sorry, William Williams? Yes. William Williams? William Williams, yes. Mm-hmm. That's they his called him name. Bill. Just confirming. Yeah, I had to double oh, check boy. that. <laughs> yeah. So William and Christine Williams. Uh, And Joanne was their only child. She was born and raised in Scranton. And she grew up surrounded by family. Even though she was an only child, she had her cousins nearby. Um, Her aunts and uncles were nearby. And actually, her cousin Audrey, who was only a few months younger than Joanne, lived only a few houses away from where Joanne lived. So they were best friends. People said that Audrey and Joanne were inseparable. Joanne was described as being kind and also as a very private person. She graduated in 1974 from the Scranton Tech Senior High School. Now, I don't know if you guys can see the pictures, but she was beautiful. She, um, she, I read that she didn't like to smile in photos because she thought she looked much better as a serious, like, contemplating something. And so she didn't smile in her photos, but she was beautiful. She kind of like looked like Princess Diana. I was going like. to say she that. She had a short haircut. I can see that yeah. a little bit. Yes. Yep. That was immediately who I thought of. So she was really pretty. So on December 7th, 1978, was like any other day for 22-year-old Joanne. She got up. She went to work at the Mallard Sportswear where she worked as a button sewer. She left work around 4 p.m. She got gas and she headed to her home where she lived with her mom and dad. Uh, she hung out with them, ate dinner with them. 
And then she left the house to drive to her dance class, which was in Chinchilla, PA. So according to Google Maps, I wanted to check this. Chinchilla is about five miles away from Scranton. So the drive should have taken her between 10 to 15 minutes. However, according to Detective William Walsh, Joanne did not actually go to the dance class that night. When she left her home that cold December night, she told her family that she was going to the dance class and she had plans to pick up a friend for this dance class. At some point between her leaving her house and her disappearing, she called that friend and told her, you know, I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to be able to pick you up tonight. I have other plans, so I'm not going to class. Now, we're not sure where Joanne called her friend from because they didn't have cell phones. This was 1978. So we're not sure where she called her friend from. From, but we do know that the call happened. The friend confirmed that, yes, yeah, she called me and said she would, couldn't pick me up and wouldn't be going to dance. So, unfortunately, this friend was probably the last person to speak to Joanne other than the person who may have harmed her. So, earlier that day on December 7th, Joanne had made plans with her boyfriend to go out after dance class for a late-night pizza date. And they decided he would meet Joanne at her parents' house after the class. So her boyfriend arrived at her parents' house on East Gibson Avenue around 10 p.m. He and her dad exchanged small talk for a while while they waited for Joanne. And they waited. And they waited. Finally, around midnight, they were panicked enough that they couldn't wait any longer. And again, no cell phones. You can't call her and say, hey, like, where are you? What's going on? So her dad, William Williams, called the police to report that his daughter had not come home that night. Now, Detective William Walsh and Detective Bernie Quinn were assigned to Joanne's case, and they took it pretty seriously from the beginning, which is great because, you know, a lot of times we get that whole, well, they're they're an adult. Adults are allowed to go away. Adults are allowed to go missing. They're allowed to yep. do whatever they want. Maybe she's out partying. So they really did take it seriously. And actually, this guy, Detective... Uh, William Walsh, it, this case really impacted him. If you look up news articles, there's just, at, in any news article, there's interviews with him for years and years after her disappearance. And he just says that, you know, I'm never giving up on this case. And he really mm-hmm. meant it. That seems kind of rare, yeah. like from what we look at. Yeah. So. Yes. yeah. Is he still alive? No, he actually passed away in 2021. Oh, wow. Oh, but even sweeter, he had a picture of Joanne hanging up in his office. And in, in, in an interview in 1985, his boss, Detective Captain Frank Roche, said, quote, He looks at it every day when he comes into work. It's a case that Billy never gave up on, which I thought was really sweet. You know, that's mm-hmm. something you would see in the movies and be like, does anyone really do I was that? just thinking that. Yeah. But there was a picture in the one newspaper and he's like sitting at his desk and you can blatantly see her pictures like it's the only thing hanging up on the wall. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, the detectives took this pretty seriously from the start. They began interviewing her friends, her family, her co-workers, and actually even the owner of the Mallards um, sportswear company that she worked for. And no one really had anything negative to say about Joanne. Most people agreed she was kind, she was dependable, and nobody could think of anyone that would want to hurt her. One of the first people that the detectives interviewed was Joanne's cousin, Audrey, the one we talked about in the beginning. Audrey, who was not only family, but also Joanne's best friend, had seen Joanne earlier in the day, that December 7th. 
which was the day she disappeared. She said that they talked for a few minutes and just had a pretty, like, normal, mundane conversation. Nothing out of the ordinary. However, Audrey said she knew something was bothering Joanne, um, but she also knew that Joanne was a very private person and wouldn't tell Audrey exactly what was going on. Audrey told reporter Lou Marcus of the Scrantonian Tribune, quote, she usually told me everything, but this time she didn't want to talk about it. With Joanne, if you pressed her, she'd shut right up, so I left rather than get in an argument. But this is so hard to comprehend. There is just no reason at all for her to go, end quote. So I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second here and just say, I think this is a crime junkie life rule, but... Don't do that. Please tell people, like, what's going on, what's wrong. Yeah. I feel like we see so many cases where the victim tells someone that something's wrong, but they don't want to talk about it. And they're like, oh, I'll tell you later. And then later never comes. Yeah. It's so hard when hindsight is twenty twenty. Yes. And in the moment, you're like, this is inconsequential. But then... I just feel so bad for her cousin, Audrey. You know, I would have done the same thing. You know, certain people don't like to talk about things and they're not going to open up if you keep pressuring them. So, you know, I would have let it go, too, and been like, oh, she'll, you know, we'll we'll catch up later. But so tell somebody. If you're upset, tell somebody. Yeah. Um, Did you tell anybody? I was upset today a little bit. Well, I'm glad you told us. I'm telling you guys now. That's... In case well, anything happens, we'll I was upset. Why was he upset? He never exactly. told us. He didn't finish the thought. <laughs> okay, well, everybody, Ed was upset earlier today. <laughs> in case something now. happens, yeah. Just in case. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> <laughs> so on December 15th, which was about eight days after Joanne went missing, her car was discovered. It was near the intersection of Lafayette Street and Everett Avenue in West Grant. So I Googled her parents' address to that intersection where her car was found, and it was about a 10-minute drive or a little over two miles, so not super far. But according to Joanne's friends and families, she didn't know anyone in that neighborhood, and she really didn't have any reason to be in that neighborhood. Do you know what kind of neighborhood it was? Like, if it was... So I talk about this a little later, but... Some article said it was, quote, sketchy and rough, unquote. So, it was dumped. But I actually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm serious. That car, that car was just dumped there. Go ahead. Sorry, Melissa. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what I think. I actually talked to someone who um, lived in Scranton in the 70s. And I was like, was it really like a rough town? He's like, no, I was a kid then. And I walked through it all the time to get pizza. So <laughs> I don't know. But. That's what the well, articles describe. Sometimes, it. if you're a kid, you don't you're not really privy to what is actually going on. And it was That's the 70s, true. so of course your parents were like, "Yeah, walk down the street, whatever. No problem. Do your, <laughs> do your thing. You're basically an adult. Why would you hitchhike there? You know, like, <laughs> so like that was. This the is 70s. not a judgment on parents yeah. in the 70s. I'm just saying mm. that's how it was. It is. It was a different time. Yeah. So back to Joanne's car um, that was supposedly found by a friend of her dad's. And there's a big discrepancy here because some articles said that it was found by her dad himself. Some said it was found by his friend backslash a family friend. And some just said it was found. So the majority of the articles said that it was found by her dad's friend. So that's what I'm going with. 
Um, the keys to the car were missing. However, all of Joanne's other belongings seemed to be accounted for. The police found her purse, her glasses, her contact lens case. They found money. I think only about $25, but still. Um, and an uncashed paycheck. And I feel like this already kind of shows that she probably didn't run away. Because even if you leave your purse, you'd still want to take your money and your contact lens case and definitely your glasses. Yeah. Because her parents actually talked about how poor her eyesight was. So you can't just leave one pair of contacts in for the rest of your life. So this stuff was found in her car or it was found in her car? In her- yes. Okay, gotcha. The only thing really missing from the car was the keys. Okay. Wow. And I believe the car was left unlocked. Sure. It, it kind of it kind of makes me think that, like, maybe she dumped the car there for some reason. Maybe she put it there planning to either meet up with somebody and get a ride or, or there was some other interaction that we didn't know about. Because if you took the time to kill someone... If, assuming she's dead, if, if you took the time to kill somebody and dump their car somewhere, you'd probably rummage through their purse and take whatever cash they had as well. Because you're you're there, you've already done all these bad things. You know, the fact that there's cash right. there is weird. Right. Well, and like it, there's more likelihood of you leaving some kind of evidence on those things. I mean, even if you right. have gloves on, you know, like hairs get caught in different like purses or whatever. But also I'm. I'm leaning towards this theory of it being dumped there because if this truly is a sketchy neighborhood, would all of her belongings still be in her car if it was unlocked, if it had sat there for so long? You know, I feel like if it yes. had been there for a while, that would have been gone through immediately. Right. That's a well, good point. That's my next point. You know, according to some sources, it was a, quote, rough neighborhood. So they were the cops and her family were kind of baffled that the car had not been broken into if all that stuff was still in it. Yeah. So this made everyone wonder how long was the car really parked there? You know, was it just there for a day? Was it there in the eight days since she disappeared? Yeah. We have no idea. And I guess they didn't go around asking people, you know, have, how long has this been there? They really didn't say anything about it. And I mean, it was the 70s, so DNA wasn't what it is now. If I don't yeah. even think it was anything then. Well, and that's the thing, so to Katie's point, the, the perpetrators back then, that's why they're all getting caught today, because they weren't worried about those things, because they didn't know about leaving sure. DNA and all this other stuff. So things were a little more free and loose yeah, in, those, in the true. 70s. Um, what a so time. I don't know, though, if they like went through the car. I didn't see anything that said they did, but I didn't see anything that said they didn't. I do know that many articles said that they let her dad drive it home, which to me what? seems like a bad. Yeah. Like, shouldn't you take that in for fingerprinting or something? At least fingerprinting. Yeah. They should have been aware of right. that. So... Hmm. But again, it's very just mentioned offhandedly. It's like, oh, we found her car. All this stuff was in it. Her dad drove it home. But it was in the snape. You know, they didn't really go into detail other than saying the cops had her dad take it home, which I thought was weird. I kept waiting to find an article that like went into that with more information, but I never did. But also, can we talk about like as a father, how awful that must be to drive your daughter's car home when she's missing? Like... I would think even beyond just the evidence, like you just wouldn't yeah. do that to somebody. 
Yeah. Yeah. Here you go. Here, take this car. Oh, my God. Drive it away. Yeah. Uh, something to note, the driver's seat in Joanne's car was still in the position that she would have had it in. She was really petite. She was five foot two. And her seat was in the position where, you know, she fit perfectly. So, you know, that's something that I know they catch people on because people don't think, you know, if the abductor or killer is six foot three, he's obviously he or she is obviously going to have to move the seat. So we don't know if, you know, Joanne did drive it there and that's why it was still in the same position or if somebody else drove it and moved it, you know, back to the position. We have no idea. Did she, you wow. did this guy, he was a boyfriend from the beginning? Her boyfriend. Yeah. The one that was hanging out with her dad until they called uh, the police. Okay. Thanks. There might have been someone and you else. you know what? There's no mention of the boyfriend again. What? There's. Yeah, nobody says anything about him. There's no articles that I could find, and I went through several that talked about the boyfriend at all. So he was cleared. The only right. thing that I could think of is that he was cleared very early on. But yeah, if that's not said explicitly, it's impossible to know. Right. And maybe he had an alibi. I mean, he would have an alibi at least from 10 to 12 because he was with her dad. Yeah, so maybe but... he had been at work or something like that. <laughs> I mean, my first thought was like, oh, they moved their date night up and she went and met him. And then he went to like cover his tracks and go waited with her parents pretending to be worried. Could oh, very well be. True. Especially if that if that seat, mm -hmm. chances are he wouldn't have been smart enough to put the seat back if someone else drove yeah, that car. Not. Right. So I don't know. Wow. So after her car was found, police brought in dogs to check the surrounding areas, but no trace of Joanne was found. And unfortunately, due to the weather, because it was December in Scranton, that made searching really difficult. There were a few days where they had big grid searches planned and the weather was just too bad that they couldn't do it. And I did look up the weather for December of 1978 in the Scranton area. And the average temperature for that month was about 26 degrees Fahrenheit. So it was cold. We actually had winters back then. No. <laughs> yeah, right? With Weird. snow and all that good stuff. Yeah it's, yeah, it's cold, cold. Yeah, it sounded awful when they were describing the weather. So luckily, the weather did get a little bit better in January of 1979. So the month, which was the month after Joanne disappeared. So police went hard with the searches. They really used every asset that they could. They used the Civil Air Patrol, also known as CAP, that's C-A-P, cadets were brought in to aid in the ground search for Joanne. Uh, CAP's a volunteer organization affiliated with the U.S. Air Force, and all of their members are involved with aviation. Huh. The Granton Squadron 201 volunteered to assist in the search. The police brought dogs in to try to find Joanne. They even had Boy Scouts out there looking uh, for her, which, side note, they... can you imagine these cute little Boy Scouts finding a body? This isn't the first... Yeah. Case I've heard where they've used Boy Scouts to search for a body. I was going to say, this is not the first time I've heard that at all. That's How traumatizing. I remember, like, my brother as a Cub Scout, and I'm like, I cannot see him and his friends out there looking for a body. Like, what do you do? Okay, we're not selling popcorn this year, boys. We're going to go find a body? Like, yeah. what? Right. Get the search and rescue merit badge. 
Yeah, but it's the 70s, so it's like child psychology is not, I mean, it's a thing, but therapy for kids is not prevalent, so you can only imagine. I mean, I am impressed at how much they threw at this case Yeah, yes, and how, like you said, they use like every asset that they had, but yeah, the Boy Scout thing, not the first time I've heard it and... I, I do like I'm sure there's a reason they don't do that anymore. Uh, I, do, <laughs> yeah. I do like the idea right. of teaching people to like yes, help out and find and do all that, but like I don't think that they were probably <laughs> equipped to like also help those kids mentally deal with <laughs> what they were doing. Yeah. I was traumatized just thinking about these poor kids out there. Yeah. You know? Like Well, luckily or unluckily, they didn't find anything. Um, I'm glad the little boys didn't find anything, to be yeah. honest. So fast forward to October of 1979, and, you know, these searches are happening this whole time. The cops really did, and Detective Walsh really put everything they had into this. So in October of 1979, which was about 10 months after Joanne disappeared, the police and detectives had nothing. When asked about the case and if they had any leads, police superintendent Paul Durkin was quoted as saying, quote, frankly, we have absolutely zero. Wow. At least he was transparent about it. Yeah. A lot yes. of a lot of departments aren't like that. No, I was thinking about this when I was researching, and I don't want to go off on like too much of a side conversation, but do you think that's a good idea to say that? Because then if there is a killer, do you think they're like, great, I'm never gonna get caught? I'd almost I like, do wonder that sometimes, but yeah. well, yeah, right. but then do you think that like they'll get cocky and a little bit sloppy? Let their guard you know, down. Like, maybe. That's true. A lot of these guys in these old cases, hey, that's exactly yeah. right. They they can't just shut up. They they tell somebody, would be it okay. six months later, six years later, they tell someone at some point. Yeah. So, you know, he said we, we have nothing. Um, but he did vow that the case would remain active. So, again, you know, they very much made it clear, like, we don't have anything, but we are not going to give up. So all this time that the police were conducting searches and interviews, for years after Joanne's disappearance, the detectives Walsh and Quinn would go to places where Joanne was known to hang out. There was a bar that she and her friends would go to after work, and the detectives would go there and, you know, just check in with the bartenders and check in with the regulars and just be like, you know, have you heard from her? Have you seen anything? Do you remember any everything or anything? So, you know, they worked on this again. I feel like I'm being repetitive, but they just really gave it their all. Yeah. And not only did the detectives give it their all, but Joanne's dad deserves so much credit. This he deserves dad of the century award. Um, from the day Joanne disappeared, he was out there searching for her. He would not give up. This man searched the Scranton area from top to bottom. He and his brother-in-law had maps of the city, and they just covered every inch of Scranton. They they did a grid search and would literally take a map and just cross out square after square as they covered it. Yeah, Yeah, uh, that hurts my heart. I know. And, like, just to think about what we know, that the weather was so bad, and just to think about, like, this dad Mm -hmm. out there searching for his child in yeah. this horrible 26 degree weather and 
I just can't even imagine. But like I said, he deserves the Dad of the Century Award. I mean, he searched cemeteries, salvage yards. This man even searched mind-stripping areas in the Kaiser Valley. Wow. I wasn't even, like, thinking about the proximity to old mining towns. So that that can really complicate things. We've done a couple cases um, near and in mining towns in Pennsylvania. And when you have old abandoned mines, you know, pe- bodies could be down there and you would never know. That's terrifying. And these didn't, these reading about these cases didn't used to bother right. me until I had kids. And then I know there's a yep. couple of you guys that don't, mm. Shannon, you, so when you, when you have one, it's totally different. Like I remember years and years ago, my kid was in the garage. It was, he would just learn to the open doors just, and walk and he was like, go on, we couldn't find it. And it was like, that was five minutes. You know, this is like, I can't even imagine what it's like for years. Definitely terrifying when in, even 30 seconds feels like hours when they're when you don't know where they're at my younger one used to climb in the clothing racks at the, at the uh, department stores and he was tiny anyway <laughs> so yeah he was he gave me you know a lot of heart palpitations bad <laughs> um well at one point her dad joanne's dad even brought in a psychic He said himself that he was really skeptical of psychics and their ability, but he was willing to try anything at this point to find Joanne. Um, And he said at least one of the psychics, he is quoted as saying, demonstrated he definitely had psychic abilities. Now, I don't know what that means, but (laughs) ultimately, none of these psychics were able to find Joanne. So... I wasn't really sure where to put this part, this next paragraph, but I'm going to talk about it here. One other aspect of this case that made it even more difficult for Joanne's family were the crank phone calls they would receive from people. I hate people. I I hate hate this. Reading this made me so angry. Like this poor family is going through. Well, hold on. Just listen. So one crank call was made on Christmas Eve where the caller claimed that Joanne's body could be found in a local park in Scranton. This park was about a five-minute drive from the Williams' home. Joanne's father and uncle raced out to the park on Christmas That's Eve. That's just despicable. Of course, they didn't find Absolutely anything. Absolutely disgusting. Like, who does that? To do that. I have I have goosebumps all over my body. That's right. That's like the scummiest thing no. that you could do. But it's not even out of the ordinary. Like yeah. you hear it all the time. Like how I mean, how can you kidnap or kill someone? But also how could you do this? Yeah. And how does it's that like bring a you whole joy? Other level? Yeah. Like what what feeling does that give you? It's really gross. It's just disgusting. And I believe, like, I don't think this was the Christmas Eve she immediately disappeared. I think it was another, it was, like, the following year. And in an article that I read, her cousin Audrey was saying, like, that time, these that call was even worse yeah. because, you know, this time of year was so hard for them because it was Thanksgiving. And then her birthday was November 29th. She disappeared on December 7th. <clears throat> and then it's Christmas. And, you know, so there's all these big events happening in this short amount of time 
And especially, sure. you know, during the holidays, it seems to make these sad things a little bit even worse. Yes. So I just I just don't understand people and people who do that. We're actually approaching the oh, to be that December 7th will be 45 years. Wow. Yes. So just to keep, you know, pulling the punches here, unfortunately, the stress of a missing child really weighed heavy on the Williams family, and they did divorce in the spring of 1979, Uh, which I think is, I think that happens a lot. I can't imagine. I mean, I don't have kids, but I can't imagine having to deal with that. You know, if a child gets sick or goes missing or something, I think that's really hard on all parents. Yeah. I did. I did a really interesting story that it actually hasn't. It's done. It was done a while ago, but hasn't aired yet. Um, but the the people involved, it was a, a mom and a stepdad. They actually got divorced during something very similar, but they remained friends. So, like once this particular victim's body was found and everything, they, despite the fact that they were divorced, they hopped a flight together and did everything together all the way through sentencing. I mean, they were like, wow, didn't wow. skip a beat. It was just a stepdad, too. So, I mean, it was like, yes, distress in their marriage was more than they could handle because of a situation yeah, like this. But is. they they were some of the most remarkable people. I mean, just for sticking aside each other, even though they split up. Yeah. So. Well, trauma it, bonding is a real thing, you know, so the fact. original foundation That's true. might have been crumbled, but yeah. they built that that they have with each other. Whew. Well, one more just to bring you guys down um, even more. Sadly, William passed away in January of 1981, never Uh, knowing what happened to Joanne. And it's interesting because Joanne's uncle, who would go searching with her dad, has stated that this when when he died, this really made him believe that Joanne was truly deceased because he thinks. She would have, you know, had she actually run away on her own or left on her own, this would have made her reach out to the family. So I think it was almost like two deaths at once when he's like, wow, she's really like, this is real. She's not coming back. Wow. So we're going to fast forward again in July of 1982. So this is just about four years after she went missing. Police actually dug up two graves in hope of finding Joanne's remains. So the day after Joanne disappeared, which was December 8th, 1978, there were two burials that day. Um, And it was the cemetery right near where her car was found. So police thought that maybe someone had hidden Joanne's body in or around the freshly dug graves. Okay, so... Detective Walsh theorized that maybe Joanne was killed and then put in the freshly dug grave and covered up with dirt. You know, after they, so what they did was, you know, they dug down, they lifted the coffins, and then they actually dug down another two feet underneath, so eight feet total, to see if she was somewhere in there. Unfortunately, nothing was found. Um, But I will say, to bring you guys up a little bit, I'm not sure the deceased people were But I do know that the police had to get permission from their families, you know, to see if they could exhume their the bodies. And apparently the families of the deceased were so cooperative and so supportive. And I can't imagine that's an easy decision to make. You know, you don't want to disrupt a loved one when they're supposed to be resting. 
Yeah, sure. So I feel like they, the family of those people really deserve a shout out for being so compassionate towards Joanne and her family because they could have said like, no, that makes me uncomfortable, you know, and even though they didn't find anything, I think that still was really big of them to do that yeah. or to agree to that. So over the years, the police continued to work on Joanne's case. Anytime a Jane Doe was found, Detective Walsh and his team they would send out Joanne's uh, dental records hoping for a match. They continually checked her bank accounts and checked in with Social Security to see if her accounts were accessed or if her social had been used. But unfortunately, nothing came of any of this and Joanne remained missing. In 1985, so they're still working on this. So wow. in 1985, detectives reached out to a well-known psychic, Dorothy Allison, Dorothy had assisted other police departments with some high-profile cases. Um, I know one of the cases she helped with was Son of Sam. Now, I don't know what role she played or, you know, what, if her premonitions were the thing that helped the police catch him. I don't know to the extent, but I do know that that was one of the cases that she helped work on. So I think that gave her a little bit of credibility there. Um, Dorothy believed that Joanne was deceased but that, quote, her body was still intact somewhere encased in ice at the bottom of a lake or in a cold spot, end quote. Hmm. Oh, that's... Eerie. It gives me goosebumps. Yeah. Yes. Well, Detective Walsh kind of thought about this, and he got the idea that maybe the psychic was seeing the bottom of a mine shaft, not the bottom of a lake. Mm. Ah, there we go. Yes. So later that year in 1985... Police said in an article that they were going to enlist the help of the U.S. Bureau of Mines so they could search abandoned mines in hope of finding Joanne. Now, I don't know if this ever happened or not. The article said that they were trying to make it happen. And then that was it. Nothing was ever found. And I um, relied heavily on one website for this case. And they said it, too. They were like, nothing was ever said again in all the research that they had done. So huh. I don't know if they did it and they didn't find anything or if they d didn't do it. You know, there was absolutely no follow-up. So in 1989, the case was handed over to the Pennsylvania State Police. In May of that year, the state police organized a large search team including cadaver dogs, to search a specific area in South Scranton. I don't know what sparked the search, but I do know that they were looking for the bodies of Joanne Williams and 11-year-old Michelle Jolene Lakey. Michelle had been missing since 1986. Um, I'm actually going to be talking about Michelle in a future episode, so stay tuned for that. But they were that was their goal, to find Joanne and Michelle in that search. And then, unfortunately, that's pretty much where the coverage on Joanne ends. Um, the Time Tribune newspaper will occasionally write an article about a local cold case. So in 2007, reporter Aaron L. Nisley wrote a piece about the missing and murdered girls and women in Scranton. Because as I kind of talked about last week, there may or may not be the Scranton Five, which are five women and girls who disappeared and or were murdered in the Scranton area. 
So Aaron kind of brought that back up and talked about that. And that was really the most recent information about Joanne that I could find. I do know that Joanne's case is still considered open. I don't know if it's active, but, you know, it is an open case still. So there's some hope that, you know, maybe they will, maybe they are actively working on it. I don't know. I now hope so. I hope so, too. Now, there's a couple of theories about what happened to Joanne. Detective Walsh has stated he believes Joanne was murdered the night she went missing. He was quoted as saying, quote, I really think the kid has been dead since the night she left her house, end quote. He cited the items in Joanne's car as being evidence for his theory. If she intentionally left, she would not have left her purse, her money, her glasses. You know, we talked about that earlier. Um, Another theory is that she ran away. And at first, Joanne's family were like, nope, she would never do that. She was given everything and anything she'd ever wanted. She had as much freedom as she wanted. And she really didn't have any reason to run away. But as the years went on, Joanne's dad started to wonder if she did leave on her own. He questioned this theory because, as I said before, he, you know, he had literally searched all of Scranton and didn't find her. So he was like, maybe she is still alive. I've turned this town upside down and I can't. We didn't find her. And at this point, there had been it had been like two hunting seasons since she disappeared. So, you know, you would have thought maybe hunters would have come across her. So I don't know that William ever really believed deep down that she ran away. I think maybe it was a little bit of self-preservation to believe that even if she purposely ran away on her own, at least she was alive and hopefully happy. Yeah. Um, Another theory is that instead of going to her dance class, she met up with someone who ultimately caused her disappearance. But we don't know who she could have met up with and... You know, did this potential meetup have anything to do with what was bothering her early in the day when she talked to Audrey? That's why I, that's the and theory then, I <laughs> buy into because I don't think, like, maybe, I don't know about that much about this boyfriend. That's why I was asking if it was a boyfriend, a husband, because I, I think she drove there herself. And whatever yeah. was there in that neighborhood, yeah. be it a person yeah. or a, Maybe she got somewhere she wasn't supposed to be, and it was random. But whatever happened, I think, happened in that neighborhood where her car was found. I agree with you. Just a thought. Yeah. Yeah, I lean towards that, too, that she went to meet with someone for some reason, and it went bad. But also, like, how did it happen? Uh, Because as we talked about, they don't have—they didn't have cell phones, so it's not like she got a text on her way to dance class, you know? So, like— Right. Was she planning to stop? Like— was she never planning she, to go pick her friend up or like right. how did the detour I, it, even it must happen? have been sometime between the the call she made to her friend and the dance class so she could have maybe went there early so that we don't have any record yeah. of that right like between that phone call that's like the last window right yeah the call she made <laughs> to her friend is the last yeah she could have been seeing somebody on the yes. side maybe what maybe wherever she called her friend from she also called somebody else and went to go meet up with. I don't. It's just like, how does that diversion even happen when you don't? Right. You can't get an instant like you need to meet me here. Right. I would love to know if they checked the phone records. Like, obviously, yeah. they didn't know what phone booth she called from or where she called from. But I wonder if at that time they could have gone to her friend's house and traced her like incoming calls. Yeah. 
I don't know if that was possible in 1978. I mean, no articles or anything talked about it. But that was something I thought of. Like, why wouldn't they check that if they had the ability? Because then they'd at least know where she called from. I don't know if they could do that, like, retroactively or if you had to have a tapped line. But mm. I guess that would just be to to listen if you were, if you had a tapped line. Well, but I remember. It's also what they use a trace, Yeah, right? and I remember, Shannon, you probably remember too, but you used to, like, when you would get a mm-hmm. phone bill. Your home phone bill, right. it would list the yep. numbers you called. Mm-hmm. And that was in the 80s. So, I yeah, mean, we had to go, go through the phone company. It wasn't okay. like nothing instantaneous, like, oh, let me go right. one line now and check my cell phone history. But um, yeah, it yeah. would have, you know, most likely shown up like an incoming and outgoing. Yes. It's, in, it's interesting to me, too, that they say that the confirmation that the phone call happened is that the friend <laughs> confirmed it, not that like, phone records right. show that a call came in at that time mm. yeah From there anywhere. was no mention so you're thinking this friend had something to do with it maybe, maybe. <laughs> it's possible if that's no, the only one who confirmed it but it, it right. also sounds like they didn't they probably figure that was good enough right. the word was good enough it yeah is. yeah yeah she was like oh yeah she called me that's <laughs> <laughs> But then I feel like they went so hardcore about searching. You would think they would follow up. Like, they're going into mine shafts or abandoned mines, but they wouldn't follow up the phone company. Like, that seems crazy. It does, but it doesn't seem crazy because of the time that we live in, you know, like, because that's such a common thing now. Yeah, we need to look up, like, when did Star 69 become a thing? Because wasn't that the thing you could call to find out who your last incoming call was? Yeah, yeah, a long time ago. (laughs) You're not going to give us a year? I want to say it was around (laughs) 88, 89, only because my boyfriend, who was older than me, like, like, heard me on to that. was like, oh, you couldn't find out who just hung up on you by Star 69. What? And you're like, wow, I know, you're I know. so he was worldly. So because <laughs> <and>, um, <laughs> he knows home phone shortcuts. It, it always called it right back, though. <laughs> so I was like not interested in using it. Like it evolved late, mm-hmm. it, it evolved later where it gave right. you the phone number. But when it first came out, you you hit that star system and called them right back. So if you did, yeah. It would just call it. Yeah. It was like, oh. Yes. oh so wow. I do remember that. You were yeah. getting called. Because even in the early 90s, I think it still did that. This looks wow. like it was um, more like the late 90s that Star 69 started. I'm looking it up right now. Uh-huh. So that may not have been a thing, but you would think that the phone company would still at least have a record of like right. incoming or out. Even if it was from a payphone, it would still show like incoming call. You know, and just like whatever payphone or unknown source or whatever it says, you would think that it would say it. And again, maybe they did check it, you know, maybe they did check on all this, you know, they just didn't report to the media that they did. I don't know. That would be interesting, though, because like, I mean, even if they even if it was a phone booth, let's say, I know that, um. There were ways to identify exactly which one, but if not, weren't they at least segmented into like they could tell where they came from in different areas or something? And so like you could at least know sort of where she was or how many phone booths were there in Scranton? <laughs> you know? Right. Like, True. 
Well, and like I said, where her car was found was only, you know, I think about 10 minutes from her parents' house. So if we look up that route, how many phone booths were there between her parents' house and where the car was found? Yeah. I have a lot of questions about this phone call. Yeah, right. It was like, do we know it was a phone booth? Could have been a bar. Could have been a restaurant. Yeah. Right. We have no idea where it came from. Yeah. Well, and I wasn't really going to go into this, but since I just kind of brought it up, they were trying to figure out how many miles she had driven, the car had been driven between her house and where it ended up. Mm. But again, more discrepancies. Some articles said two to three miles and others said 20 to 30 miles. And I'm like, well, that doesn't help me. You know, if she really only did drive two to three miles in that time, then that would make sense because Google said it was about 2.2 miles, that intersection where the car was found to her parents' house. But how would they know that? Like, you have to know the starting mileage. Who would know the starting mileage, you know? Especially if it's down to two miles. They were trying to figure it out because she had got gas that night right after work. She like got done work, got gas, and then went home. So I think that they were trying to figure out how much gas was <laughs> used. But then you're right. How how do you know? Maybe she already had a three quarters right. of a tank or only a quarter yeah, of a tank. Yeah, that's... So once yep. I saw so many discrepancies, I was like, maybe I'm not even going to bring it up just because it just adds more frustrating questions. Yeah. She could have sure. called from the gas station, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the last theory I want to talk about kind of ties in with the last case I covered. If you remember from the last case I covered, that would have com- will come out on December 8th, I believe, um, about the disappearance of Shelley Ludy from Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. I mentioned that at one point there was a man who many people thought had something to do with Shelley's disappearance, and that man was Frank Ostellani. If you remember, well, I don't know, Ed, you think, you know, he could, he was a good suspect. I don't know that I see the connection between Shelly and Frank. He did look eerily similar to the sketch of the last person Shelly was seen speaking to before she disappeared. Um, Well, we're coming back to Frank for this case, because Frank is actually thought to be involved with quite a few murders and disappearances in the Scranton area. But he was ultimately only charged in one case. In 1989, he was convicted of the rape and murder of nine-year-old Renee Waddle, um, which I think I'm going to cover that case also. So we're going to do kind of all of this grand five and then we can kind of come back and see which ones we think maybe he committed. Um. So much like with Shelley's disappearance, many people think Frank has something to do with Joanne's disappearance. And I think this is more likely that he had to do with Joanne's and Shelley's um, because they lived and were Joanne and Frank lived and worked in the same area. And Frank actually owned a garage only one and a half blocks from Joanne's house that she lived in with her parents. One news article actually theorized that perhaps Frank had done work on Joanne's car in the past, but Joanne's mother disputed this, so I don't know if it really happened. Uh, I will say that in 1990, Detective Walsh, who was retired at this point, told the Tribune that he did not believe Frank was involved in Joanne's disappearance. He didn't really give a reason other than saying that the pieces didn't fit for him. Huh. So it does seem like they've kept some things kind of close to the mm-hmm. vest. 
that yes. they're just not sharing with the public. I agree. And I just wish there was more. Like, I wish something would spark, spark, you know, the interest to open the case, re- to reactivate the case, I should say. Now, yeah. unfortunately, or I think more fortunately, but Frank died in prison in 2020. So, you know, we might never find out what happened to Joanne. He did maintain his innocence to the very end. Personally, I think Frank definitely has something to do with the disappearance of Joanne Williams and most likely the other missing and murdered girls and women. Um, If you guys take a look at the map that I included, and I'm hoping, Grace, we can put it on the website, you can see how close all the victims were to each other and to Frank. I mean, we're talking mere blocks that they were all connected. Yeah. It's a big coincidence. Exactly. Um, sadly, Joanne's mom, Christine, passed away in 2015 and Detective Walsh died in 2021. Neither of them ever finding out what happened to Joanne. Mm. And as of this recording, her case is still open, but it is considered a cold case as they haven't had any leads in several years. So, I mean, what do you guys think? I think Frank did it. I'm going to accuse Frank in every local story until... One of them <laughs> proved me wrong, proved otherwise. Frank, <laughs> yep. Frank. Yep. I like two that. stories, I two like Franks. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I don't know if I can really say whether or not it was Frank. I I don't know. There's just pieces missing, like like I said, that the police may have and they're mm-hmm. just not sharing. Yeah. It's just hard for me to point I don't think that she ran away i think that's off the table for me she would have taken her stuff uh, yeah Yeah. other than that i'm really not sure i keep going to she drove her car to that neighborhood met up with someone for something we don't know what could have been totally innocent and then something bad happened but as soon as I think that's what happened, I remember that. So that means her car would have been sitting there unlocked for eight days and no one took like nothing was taken. Nothing was, you know, that just seems kind of unlikely. Yeah, I wish I had more to offer. I think yeah. it's, it's I confusing. I don't yeah. know. Uh, thinking about the whole car thing, and you're right that something probably would have been taken, but the car was left in the position like she had been driving mm-hmm. it, you know, unless the person that moved it there, if it wasn't her, really had the f- foresight to move the car, the seat position back. It, it just, I don't know. I can't seem to make anything fit. Yeah. And and the problem is they gave that car back so quick. So if they didn't, I know there was no information about it, but whether or not they found anything in it and forensics existed, but like they would have to find a hair or a yeah. fingerprint, something like mm-hmm. physical to do anything yeah. with it back then. But once you give that yeah. back to the parents, yeah. that's it's game over. I mean, you're not going to find anything at that point. Yep. Yeah. I also feel like. Yeah, well, I wonder if they at least dusted for prints on the steering wheel or anything like that. I mean, who knows? You'd hope. Yeah, they didn't say anything. I wonder if like, um, well, I'm inclined to think that when she was talking to her friend and telling her, you know, that like something was bothering her, but she didn't want to talk about it. If she was going to run away, I feel like she almost would have said more of like a goodbye and not left something hanging like that. You know, like I feel like there would have been a few more context clues. 
like I'm planning to leave. That sounds more to me like she's stressed or worried about something and scared to tell someone than like, you know, she was planning to run away. I would have thought it would have been more of a like farewell. Yeah, that's a really good point. (laughs) Well, that is the case of Joanne Williams. Um, So, you know, if you know anything about Joanne, please reach out to either the Pennsylvania State Police Troop R or the Scranton Police. Um, And hopefully, you know, hopefully one day they will find Joanne or at least figure out what happened. I hope so. Well, just to wrap up real quick, I want to thank our listeners for their participation in our review contest on Facebook. Yay! We're actually going to continue doing this. So if you want a really fun Keystone Cold Cases sticker, all you have to do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Amazon Prime or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Screenshot that review and you can send it to our email at keystonecoldcases at gmail.com. Can I, the, all this swag so, that we're giving away, can I like get a keychain? I saw, I saw them the other night and I'm like, we're giving <laughs> out swag, not. but do, are, we, are we getting swag? None for you, Ed. None for you. <laughs> Go on. And, and none and for you know wieners. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just threw out the first keychain I made that I messed up. I could have given, I would have gladly given I'll take a lemon. Yeah, one. I'll take a dud. <laughs> uh, and also in that email, if you can include your address so we know where to send it. <laughs> yes, good call. Include your address <laughs> and I will happily send you out a super fun sticker and maybe some other fun merch at some point. So get those reviews in, please. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and please consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to find out more about us, the pod, and the cases we cover, or want to suggest a case, please visit us at kccpod.com or send us an email at keystonecoldcases at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Keystone Cold Cases and on Instagram and TikTok at KCC Pod. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Melissa. Find all of our sources, social info, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Nakins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.